Today is 2006, September 21st. Today is Lecture 2, Astronomical Numbers. The first official lecture of Astronomy 161 for Autumn 2006 will begin in just a moment. Great. Okay, so today we're going to begin with Lecture 2, Astronomical Numbers. We're going to start out a little easy. This should be a bit of review material. It's ma familiar material, but I want to try to set things in an astronomical context. And also use it as my way as a not terribly heavy-duty lecture to give you an idea of how the lectures are going to go and how things are structured. Very first thing I want to begin every lecture with is what I call the key ideas slide. If you take no other notes in this class, get these down. And certainly this is why you should go to the web page for these. These are exact copy of what's at the top of the web page. This is my outline for the lecture. This is what we're going to be talking about, basic topics. It sets, sets the stage for me because I can talk about anything forever and I'll wander off track. And so this is my roadmap to keep me online. It's also very useful for you when it comes time to studying. This is a very content-rich class. I say a lot of things. But this is the basic outline of what we're doing. This is also the skeleton of, for example, how I craft homework assignments, how I craft tests. So if you wanted to build yourself a study guide, if I didn't give you one, the way you could build a study guide for each quiz is simply copy down all the key ideas from every one of the lectures on that quiz. And you've got the main topics right there. Sometimes I'll put the results in. Sometimes I'll just list them as topics here. So that's the point of this slide. This is a real important one to both for me and, and everyone else. So today we're talking about astronomical numbers is to introduce or I hope reintroduce the idea of scientific notation. It's our way of expressing numbers using powers of 10 because in astronomy we are going to be dealing with everything from the realm of the very smallest things in the universe to the size of the universe itself. And we need to have a compact and consistent way of notating that. And so we're going to use scientific notation throughout this class because it's simply unavoidable. Our language simply runs out of words after a while for the numbers we're dealing with. I'm also going to reintroduce the standard prefixes, particularly those we're going to use over and over again in this class, just as a way to get sort of everyone on the same page. The other main idea today is to reintroduce to everyone and emphasize the metric system of units. In science, we use the metric system extensively, in fact, exclusively. But I will admit I am born in and live in the United States. And we also use a parallel set of English units. And every now and then, I'm just going to slide into English units because A, I'm lazy. B, because it's so natural and easy that sometimes it gets the point across better than metric. But I'm going to really emphasize metric and try to give you some feel for how to get used to thinking metric. We really have to deal with the metric system. We're the last people left in the world who aren't using it, really, mostly. So we'll talk about the units of length, time, and mass that are the most important to us in this class. And I'll introduce at the end the concept of weight versus mass. It's a misconception about these two different quantities that actually plays some role when we talk about astronomy. So today's key ideas is to introduce our system of units that we're going to use throughout this class and to introduce the idea of scientific notation, how we're going to write our numbers down. Now, astronomy deals with numbers. In fact, astronomical numbers in general tend to be really big numbers. Let me just throw a few at you. The average distance of the Earth to the Sun, if I write it out in full gory precision, is 149,597,870.691 kilometers. Now, I would never, ever ask you to memorize a 12-digit number. I can't do that myself. I was reading off the screen. Come on. It's about 150 million kilometers in round numbers. But that's a big number. And that's just the distance from the Earth to the sun. That's, that's, that's just our own backyard. The mass of the sun is 
I can't say that number. That number is got 27 zeros in it. So it's one nine. I, you know, there just is not a word in the English language for this number of kilograms. And that's just the sun. And the sun is a small star. So we've immediately got a problem. Even when I talk about time, I'm already getting into big units. The age of the Earth in round numbers is about 4,600,000,000 years old. That's a hell of a big number. And that's just asking about the age of the Earth. The age of the universe is up around 14, 15 billion years old. So already, we're basically up to our eyeballs and zeros. So we've got to find some way of dealing with these big numbers. Now, by saying that astronomy is only people who use big numbers, of course, is missing the point. There are lots of big numbers in everyday life. The United States national debt, as of September 15th, it's, it's tabulated weekly, is $8,487,381,006,795.66. And I think if I reach in my pocket, we could make that an easy $796, but it changes every second. The number of Oreo cookies which have been baked ever since Oreo, the Nabisco company began baking them is 490 billion cookies. Believe it or not, those little chocolate and cream wafers, they've made a whole lot of those. In fact, they've made enough that I could put one Oreo cookie on every single star in the Milky Way and Andromeda galaxies and still have enough left over for lunch. So we're used to using big numbers. In fact, these should really be economic numbers since they refer to debt and industrial production. But they are astronomical in scale, sort of as an idea, uh, sort of a signpost of the modern world is we've begun to develop language for dealing with some big numbers. I really don't know what $8 trillion is like. I just know it's a whole bunch of. And 490 billion Oreos, I really have a hard time wrapping my head around that. But we have to kind of start getting used to it because in astronomy, these numbers are unavoidable. Now, the problem of zeros suppression is, is a big one. And so we've come up with, over the years, a compact notation for talking about those numbers with tons of zeros so that I don't get carpal tunnel syndrome by typing zero, zero, zero. I don't know about you, but typing that number out with all the zeros was hard. I had to count that out three or four times because it's hard to do. It's hard to keep that numbers track in your head, right? One, two, three, a whole lot. It's, it's really hard to keep more than 10 in your head at one time. So what we do is we use powers of 10, which are the easiest things to keep around to set scale. And we define something called scientific notation. A scientific notation number has two parts. The first part, it actually has a name. It's called the mantissa. It's basically the significant digits of the number. It's the numbers we actually know. In this case, we only know four digits for this particular number. Some of you may recognize just before, it's, it's the mass of the sun in kilograms. We really don't know. 31 numbers for the mass of the sun in kilos. We really only know the first four. So we put those down, and that forms the mantissa. That's the significant digits of what we're talking about. That's a whole lot easier to remember four numbers than 31. And then I put up an exponent of a power of 10 that sets the scale for the number that I'm talking about, expressed in powers of 10. 10 times, 10 times 1 is 10. 10 times 10 is 100. 10 times 10 times 10 is 1,000. So, of course, this is simply the number of 10s I'm multiplied together. In this case, this is a 10 multiplied by itself 30 times, or a 1 followed by 30 zeros. The base 10 number system is really good to us in this regard. So I've taken this number, which literally falls off the page and off the screen, and I've compactified it, and I've concentrated on those parts I know, the mantissa, 
And that part that sets the scale relative to everything else, how big it is, 10 to the 30 is big. I don't have to think, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, how many numbers, how many zeros there are in there. I say, oh yeah, 30 is big. You know, we can hold numbers. I can think of what $100 is like. Can you conceive of what a million dollars would be like on the stage? I, I can't. I'd love to, but I can't. So we can hold numbers up to kind of 100 in our head. And so you can see what the goal of this is. I'm rescaling and renotating my numbers so every number is under 100. Something human scale. I'm scaling it for people's heads. So let's do this for a couple as examples. That mass of the sun, which I don't have a word for, I can now read 1.989 times 10 to the 30 kilograms. I can't say the top one, but I can say the other. And notice there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 groups of three digits. 10 times 3 is 30. I put the decimal point after the first significant digit. There are 30 decimals before. And so I know to convert that into 1.98, the four digits I know, times 10 to the 30. Let's face it, the top number is really a ludicrous number. I don't know that all those digits are really zero. The precision with which I can measure the sun stops right there, which is pretty darn good. That's a part in 10,000. But I certainly don't know it to a part in 10 to the 30. Scientific notation really helps us. It gets the irrelevant zeros out of the way and lets us focus on the thing we know. It also works in the other direction when I go to the realm of the very small. The diameter of a hydrogen atom expressed in meters is this horrible looking number that I cannot say. It's point, point zero 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 one oh six meters. Well, that's just really hard to say. It's a whole lot easier to say 1.086 times 10 to the minus 8 meters. Why, I'm sorry, 10 to the minus 11. Why 10 to the minus 11? Because it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 places I have to move that decimal point over to put it there. The mantissa is always a number between 1 and 10. And then I multiply by the rest of the power of 10s that tell me where the zeros are to set the scale. So we have really big 10 to a big positive number, really small 10 to a big negative number. Very simple and very, very nice and compact. It gets rid of all the stuff. It saves ink. It saves on carpal tunnel syndrome. And it gives us a way to say the number without too much difficulty. Now we're going to use the metric system. And notice I've already used metric in all the units I've talked about, except maybe dollars and Oreo cookies. We're going to use three fundamental units of the, of the metric system, base units, in this class. We're going to try to express all lengths in meters or some multiplier of meters that makes sense. We're going to talk about mass in kilograms and time in seconds. Now, we may rescale these if the number of kilograms or the number of meters gets so big, we're starting to talk about scientific notation every other word. It gets ugly, and we rescale. When we talk about long time scales, I may talk about years, for example, or millions of years rather than seconds when that becomes the relative, relevant scale of time to talk about. Now, all scientists use the metric units. And we're going to use them because everything is expressed that way. I'm a scientist. I even have tried for many years to put up, for example, a Celsius thermometer in my house to learn the Celsius scale. And I will confess the Celsius scale still defeats me. Although I know that 40 Celsius is real hot and 0 Celsius is real cold, I don't have as intuitive a feel for that as I do for Fahrenheit temperatures. 
I'm going to try to use Celsius temperatures in this class, but I'm going to always translate to Fahrenheit because I will just simply personally admit to you, I still can't deal with it. My Canadian friends laugh at me. We also have to deal with metric units to get on in this global economy. There are only three nations in the world where, not officially, but in everyday practice, metric, non-metric units are still used. Everyone else's metric in the world except for the United States, Liberia, and Myanmar, which used to be known as Burma. There's something wrong with this picture. The world's economic and military superpower, a slightly dysfunctional West African nation, and a despotic uh, South Asian dictatorship. Bad company. We should start going metric. We have to sort of grow up and start dealing with it. All right. Now, metric units, unfortunately, we have, if we just simply expressed everything in meters, kilograms, and seconds, we'd be up against the wall because we'd still start running into big numbers and it'd be starting to get hard to say. And let's face it, talking scientific notation on the street doesn't get you very far. So we have a number of prefixes which have become standard in the use of the metric system. Now you'll notice these are mostly, but not all, multiples of 1,000. Remember our writing convention of writing zeros and separating them by every three with commas? That's a convention for breaking things up into the groups of thousands. Thousand is a number we can kind of get at. 100 is a number we're pretty good at. Ten's easy for most, you know, most of us anyway. So the standard prefixes we will use is 10 to the 3 or 1,000 is a kilo. For example, a kilogram or a kilometer. 10 to the 6 is a mega, which is a megawatt, or a mega year. Not, unusual, not a usual one you hear every day, mega year, but we use it a lot around here. 10 to the 9 is a giga, like a gigabyte or a giga year. Okay, now I, I know that there's a few computer science people out there who will say, no, wait a minute, professor. A mega, a gigabyte is actually got a 1024 in there because it's really 2 to the 10. Yeah, I know. We're going to be sloppy. 10 to the 12, tera, a terabyte, a trillion bytes. A terawatt is a trillion watts. 10 to the minus 2 is a centa. This is the one exception to the everything goes in units of 3 rule. The centa is because we can get our head around a hundredth pretty good, too. A centimeter is about the width of a human finger. So it's actually a sort of a human scale unit. We use it a lot for human scale things. 10 to the minus 3 are millis, like millimeter and millisecond. It's from the, the Latin mille, meaning a thousand. 10 to the minus 6 is a micro, like a microsecond, or an odd little unit we call the micron, which is a short for a micrometer. It's actually a unit that goes back to before this whole system was standardized in an international sense. And finally, about as low as we get in this class is something called 10 to the minus 9 or a nano, like a nanosecond or a nanometer. A nanosecond is the amount of time it takes light to travel roughly across this room. A nanometer is roughly the typical unit for wavelengths of light or the sizes of atoms. So all of these numbers are pretty good. They all kind of encompass a lot of things. The universe's ages and the Earth have ages measured in giga years. Geologic time scales are mega years. Terabytes, tera years is actually trillion years we can find in certain types of stars. Centimeters is human scale. Millimeters is getting down to the scale of kind of grains of stuff. Microns, micrometers, microseconds are the shortest time scales that occur in certain atomic and molecular processes, the sizes of the heads of human hairs, the smallest grains of solid material in space, and finally nano, we're getting down to the atomic scale. So with seven short words, we can now say phenomena which span nearly the entire range of what we're dealing with in astronomy. 
Not always. Every now and then we're going to run into something so big, usually masses, where we have to just have no choice, but we have to use scientific notation. We just, we run, the words don't exist in the language. The standard prefixes have a number of very good advantages. One is that we all agree upon them all over the world. And the second is all languages use these prefixes the same. I'll give you a good example, although it's not as good an example as it used to be because of the internet and globalization. The words million and billion. To the United States for many years, a million, and a million was a million things, a billion was a thousand million. But if you were British, a billion was a bi-million or a million-million, what we would call a trillion. So the words that have evolved in the individual languages for big numbers had built-in cultural confusion to them. But we would all agree what a megawatt and a terabyte would be, because tera has an internationally agreed-upon mathematical meaning. So the reasons for adopting these is not to be, uh, not to be fashionable. Yes, I know, they are French in origin. Um, but they are meant to basically give us a common language for expressing things, and it's a precisely defined language. And a lot of sometimes in science, the trick to getting through it is agreeing upon the precise definitions and using them consistently. And so we're going to be very, I'm going to be as careful as I can about using them consistently in this class and expect you to do the same. Well, let's go through the basic units of length, etc., and see how these things work. The basic unit of length is the meter. And I have a nice wooden example up here of a meter stick. Of course, we are in the United States. I can flip it over and show you the inches. The traditional definition of the meter was an attempt to come up with a physically defined set of units. During the French Revolution and afterwards, there was a so-called Age of Enlightenment, which tended to go just a little bit too far every now and then. But one of the good things it did was to say, look, for years and years, every country has had different units based on extremely arbitrary cultural things, right? The foot literally was the size of somebody's foot. Maybe the king, maybe some guy the king liked. Weights were given by pounds, which might be some lump that someone had somewhere that was the local pound. But if you went to France or Germany, they had a different local unit. If you think it's bad now, think what it's like looking at documents from antiquity of ancient Greece and Egypt. Just how big is a stady, for example? Oh, well, that's easy. That's 600 Greek feet. Well, what's a Greek foot? Well, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, a Roman mile. Well, actually, we're kind of in good shape with the Roman mile because there's a lot of Roman ruins around with mileposts, and we've been able to measure them and come up with a number. But what's a cubit? The old biblical unit of the cubit. It's kind of the nose to the thumb at the arm outstretched. Whose arm? Well, probably the king. What if the king had short arms? Everyone's cubit changes. This is bad. And international commerce, which was rising during this period, demanded new units. And so the French after the French Revolution, a group of French scientists decided they wanted a set of units that were separate from all this cultural stuff and were based on the physical properties of the, of the world itself. So they defined the meter to be one ten millionth the distance from the North Pole to the equator along a north-south meridian. A round number, one ten millionth, and it was going to be base 10, right? 12 inches to the foot. Why are there 12 inches to the foot? We got 10 fingers, guys. Anyone know why it's 12? Full number game. It's easy to work with. Very good. Why? Because it's evenly divisible by 2, 3, and 4 without resort to fractions. If you're going to divide something up three ways, you don't want to carry fractions in your head. People before, in previous centuries, hated fractions as much as you do. So, working with powers of 10 makes it easy, but it demands a decimal system. 
So that was the definition agreed upon, but the problem is the Earth is not a perfect sphere. Um, it's really hard to measure one ten millionth of the distance from the North Pole, which is in the middle of the Arctic Ocean, to the equator because there's no contiguous land from point to point. It has to be determined indirectly. So a modern definition has been developed using basically quantum mechanics and the properties of light. The modern definition of the meter is distance traveled in a vacuum by light in that fraction of a second. Now, that's not a number I expect you to know. I have to look that one up myself. That's actually a form of the speed of light. But what we've done is say, the Earth is not a good ruler, but light, the universal messenger, the universal carrier of electromagnetic energy, is in fact a universal constant. It's the same speed of light everywhere in the universe in a vacuum. And therefore, it becomes the most sensible thing to set our units of distance on. So in fact, there are devices called laser interferometers, which can actually measure how long a light travel time is. Now, they obviously don't measure that small fraction of a second, but they fold the light path back and forth between mirrors and measure that to exceedingly high precision. They adopt and pick a value for the speed of light, and that fixes the meter. From that, they can then make platinum iridium versions of this that have good expansion properties when they get hot and cold, and then they can sell those to companies which then knock out um, wooden meters. So for example, the Westcott Corporation of somewhere in the United States, it still is made in the USA, gets a standard metal meter and they build their machines to crank out a pretty darn good meter stick. That's how a meter is defined. We've now taken it from a traditional unit and defined it first in terms of something having to do with the Earth, in this case the shape of the Earth, and now we've defined it in terms of something which is a fundamental property of the universe. You didn't know your basis of units was based on something like that. It's true. So let's get some idea of what this is. This is a meter. If I want to go up to 10 meters, 10 meters is about the diameter of this room, or about the size of the section of the building. If I want to go up 100 meters, and I want to put this in an astronomical context, Google, I love Google Earth. This is Stillman Hall, and my office is up here. It turns out the distance between us, in, as the crow would fly, not as the professor would walk, is about 100 meters. Well, let's drop up the scale another power of 10. A kilometer, a thousand meters. Once I hit 1,000, I reset my units to the kilometer, because a kilometer is easier to, to say than 1,000 meters. Where is a kilometer from Stillman? Well, if I head west, it's going to get me right in the middle of the Olentangy on the other side of the football field, as shown by this picture, a satellite picture of Columbus. Let's take it up another notch. Let's keep going west, 1,000 meter, uh, 10,000 meters, or 10 kilometers away, and I end up out past the Beltway. There's the uh, Scioto River right there and I end up sort of getting off into the Dublin. What used to be cornfields is now a condo land. So that's, th that's 10 kilometers. So 10 kilometers is about the size or radius of a typical size, mid-size to large-size American city. Let's go up another factor 10. Let's go out to 100 kilometers. This is no accident. Actually, that line from Stillman 100, I ran out 100 kilometers. It ran through the middle of Troy, Ohio. Anyone here from Troy? Now, I have a couple people every now and then. There's Troy, Ohio. It's exactly 100 kilometers away. Again, we're walking up scale. It's now 100,000 of these away, of these meter sticks that I'm holding up. Let's keep going. Let's go to 1,000 kilometers. Again, a coincidence, it lands pretty close to the middle of Kansas City. I don't remember right now if it's the Missouri side or the Kansas side, and since as a preschooler I lived in both, I don't care. But there's 1,000 kilometers. It's from Columbus to Kansas City. Now we've crossed the bound. So 100 kilometers scales is the scale of a state. 1,000 kilometers is the scale of most of a modern nation. 
I now go up the next power of 10, I get from Stillman 100 to somewhere in the Gulf of Suez off of Egypt. So now 10,000 kilometers becomes the scale over which between distances between continents. So, so far I've used 1,000, 10,000. We kind of can get an idea of what that means. But now I'm ready to make the next jump to something of a scale of 100,000 kilometers. I clearly am going to leave the Earth. In this case, the nearest thing I hit is from the Earth to the Moon, which is 384,000 kilometers. I haven't even gotten out of the backyard and already I'm into hundreds of thousands of kilometers in an astronomical scale. This immediately tells me, for talking about astronomy, kilometers are going to wear thin once I get past planetary scales. So I'm talking about things on planets, asteroids, the sizes of planets and moons. Kilometers are okay. The distances between planets and their moons, yeah, kilometers is okay, but they're getting to be kind of big, clumsy numbers to say. But if I want to go, but that's just barely getting out there. When I want to get to the scale of the solar system, I need to, to make a new unit up. I need to get rid of some zeros. So I'm going to introduce two astronomical units of length that are going to be important to us. Now here comes the new stuff. The astronomical unit is one fundamental, uh, fundamental unit we'll use for length scales relevant with inside of a solar systems or planetary systems. It's defined as the mean distance from the Earth to the Sun. The Earth's orbit is not a perfect circle. It's actually elliptical. But I can define the average distance. And I'll call that one astronomical unit, or one AU for short. We're going to use a lot of AUs in this class. It is approximately 1.496 times 10 to the 8 kilometers. If you want a rough and ready number to carry in your head, it's the one I always use for back of the envelope calculations, 150 million kilometers. And now you can see why we want to talk about an AU rather than 150 million kilometers. 150 million is just a tough number to carry around and use every day. But if I say 1 AU, it works out pretty good. And the way to think of the AU is the distance of the Earth from the Sun, and it's the useful distance when talking about distances between planets and between things within our solar system. But space is really big. And this is even this is not going to be adequate for all the things we can talk about. There's a second unit I'm going to introduce here called the light year. It's the distance traveled by light in one calendar year. And it works out to be about 9.46 times 10 to the 12 kilometers. One light year only gets me one quarter of the way to the nearest star. So, we, that's, so kilometers have just simply ceased to be useful. So when I talk about distances between stars, we'll use light years. When we talk about distances between planets, I'll use the astronomical unit. For those of you who go on to Astronomy 162, you will encounter another unit called the parsec, which is defined differently, but we'll leave that for a different day because we just don't use it in this class. So the AU for the solar system, light years for distances between stars. So let's do our little moving ruler trick here. We're now going to, just like before, where I held up the meter stick and said this is our fundamental unit, the meter, and I scaled things on the Earth, the moon. Now here's the meter stick for space. It's the one AU. It's the distance from the Earth to the Sun. So what do we do now? Instead of going up powers of 10 in meters, we're going to go up powers of 10 in AUs. So one AU kind of gives us the inner solar system. You can turn that into kilometers if you want. 10 AUs gets us out to the orbit of Jupiter. Not quite exactly. Jupiter is about 10.4 astronomical units across. But 10 AUs encompasses the largest planet in the solar system, the asteroid belt, and the inner planets. 
If I go up another power of 10 to 100 AUs, I now encompass most of the basic solar system of planets out to Neptune, whose orbit is approximately 80 astronomical units across. This is a little bit pre-summer picture. I still have pictures of the solar system still include Pluto. We nowadays would include Eris in here as well. But 100 AUs easily encompasses Pluto and all these other little objects, which are Pluto is the largest member of, the so-called trans-Neptunian objects. So when I talk about the solar system out to the limits of the planetary system, 100 AUs becomes relevant. 1 AU for the inner solar system, 10 AUs encompassing out to the beginning of the gas planets, 100 AUs encompasses the entire main body of the solar system. 1,000 AUs gets kind of empty out there. There are some things like Sedna, some comets live out in this zone, but 1,000 AUs is really getting out into the boondocks. That little square that you see in yellow up there is the previous 100 AU box that I showed on the previous screen. Once I leave the solar system, AUs become ridiculous. One light year is about 63,200 AUs. So I drop using the AU when I jump from the sun to the nearest stars, and I begin to use the light year. The nearest star is a little red dwarf star named Proxima Centauri. It's 4.22 light years away. And that's just the nearest star. If I go out to the solar neighborhood, let's now go up our factor of 10 to 10 light years. These are now the stars nearby. Sirius, the dog star, is pretty bright and, and, and obvious there. Procyon is the bright star in Canis Minor. It's one of the other pair of stars, the big dog and the little dog constellations. The rest of the stars around us are little red dwarfs. They're actually not visible to the naked eye. They're only visible in telescopes. So this is where 10 light years get you. And that little sphere I've drawn in yellow is the one light year sphere of the, actually it's a four light year sphere of the last picture. We can then get up to the scale of the galaxy. Here's the Milky Way galaxy in a cartoon viewed from above. The sun is located approximately 26,000 light years from the center of the Milky Way. And at that point, well, luckily we're not Astronomy 162, we would have to learn even further units. We would start using kilo and mega and giga for the distances between galaxies and the distances across the universe. So you can see how we've had to take the meter, which is great for human scale things, and we've had to build ourselves new meter sticks for space. The AU for the solar system, the light year for the nearby stars. We use the AU a lot in this class, so, so definitely learn that one, and, and know that it's 150 million kilometers in round numbers. Time. Yes, there's still plenty of time in the class. The basic unit of time is the second. The second was originally defined astronomically. Now, it's a good long history, and we'll say more about this in detail in a different lecture on telling time. But the traditional de definition of the second is 1 86,400th of a mean solar day. So you watch the sun cross at noon, and you wait to count the number of seconds until the sun is at noon again. And on average, you have to do that over many days, 86,400 seconds will elapse from noon to noon. We're using the Earth as a big clock. And we define the second because there's 24 hours in a day times 60 minutes per hour times 60 seconds per minute. And you do them numbers, it's 86,400. It turns out, however, this is, not, this is great for basic purposes in the 17th and 18th centuries, but it's got a problem. The Earth does not rotate at a constant speed. It's actually got a fluid interior. There's tides from the moon. It slips and slops. The day is actually getting longer. It may seem that way in this lecture, but the days are actually getting slowly longer per century. 
So the modern definition is to take the Earth out of the equation and use atomic processes. Atoms can act like little clocks. This is not the most helpful of definitions. It's 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a cesium-133 isotope atomic clock. Basically, what I expect you to understand from this one is we've redefined the second in terms of oscillations in an atomic clock chamber. <coughs> we've basically removed the irregularities of the rotation of the Earth from the system and gone to the most regular clocks we know of, quantum mechanical systems. Now, the common uses of time are seconds, minutes, hours, and years. These are the basic units here. So even though we've tied our system of time really fundamentally to atomic units, we fall back on good old everyday human units, which have their ancient origins in astronomical observations of the sky. We'll say a lot more about this a little bit later in class. We'll have a whole lecture on time-telling and calendar systems in a couple of weeks. This is what a modern clock looks like. This is a bank of redundant atomic clocks at the U.S. Naval Observatory. Each of these things is tied together so that if one fails, the other one keeps on ticking. And each of them is basically a very, ex very expensive and highly tuned atomic cavity oscillator. So those are atomic clocks. And that's how we tell time is atomic time systems. Mass. How much is the mass of something? The basic definition of mass is the kilogram. The gram is too light to be useful on everyday scales. When was the last time you had a gram of anything that wasn't encapsulated in something like, you know, a gram of aspirin or something like that? That's a lot of aspirin. That's 1,000 milligrams. See, we've been using grams for a long time. The kilogram is a much better definition. The traditional definition of the kilogram is a liter of pure water. Now, we should all learn how to use kilograms in the global economy and you know, living else in the world. This is the easiest way to do it. We've been selling fluid quantities in the United States in liters for years. How many, what's the last time you bought 12 ounces of Coke? Well, really, you're probably dropping, yeah, we still do that. But most of us buy it by the two-liter bottle. Two-liter bottle will weigh two kilos, have a mass of two kilos. So if you want to get the feeling of a kilo in your hands, this is why I know kilos really well, have to round a liter bottle of water sometime. That's exactly one kilo in the traditional definition. But the problem with this definition is it's slippery as well, not the least of which is because it can pour out of your bottle. I really don't think there's exactly one liter of bottle in the ice mountain here. There might be. Some of it's evaporated. Some of it's spilled. Pure water. What if there's a little salt content? I mean, after all, ice mountain may be different than somebody springs. That will change the density of the water slightly. And Columbus tap water? Let's not go there. So we have to use a modern definition that works really well. And the modern definition is the mass of the international prototype of the kilogram. This is the only one that's a little bit wacky. It's a platinum iridium alloy weight made to exactly one kilogram of mass, and it's kept in a special vacuum-tight jar so junk doesn't deposit on it and change its weight and stuff doesn't evaporate off it, kept in the International Bureau of Weights and Measures in Sèvres, France. It looks like this. There it is. That is the kilo right there. It's a platinum iridium alloy, and these multiple bell jars keep dust from falling on it. They then use this to make copy kilograms, which you can buy to various precision, and you use them in your bureaus of weights and measures. Franklin County, if you ever go to the grocery stores, I'm sure you do, if you go to the butcher counter or you see any scales there, there's a little sticker saying the Franklin County Board of Weights and Measures has certified, or whoever they call themselves, has certified this scale as accurate. So you know that the big bird or giant eagle or whatever they call themselves isn't ripping you off when you buy tomatoes. 
they purchase a standard kilo which they carry around and test every scale. And those kilos ultimately have a provenance which can be checked by paperwork back to the kilo in Sevres, France. The United States has a reference copy of the same quality as do a number of other major industrial nations. The Japanese and the Chinese, I believe, have one now too. So we've redefined our mass system based on international agreement so that when I ship a kilo of whatever from the United States to some other country, we all agree on what that kilo is. It's a very convenient way of, of keeping commerce going in the globe. Now this brings us to a, an interesting little problem of language. We're very sloppy with our language when we talk about mass versus weight. In fact, you even heard me be sloppy in saying, this thing weighed a kilo. And I'd say, no, 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 it has a mass of a kilo. Why do I keep swipping those words? Because English is slippery. Every language is slippery, but English is more slippery than most. English has grown most of its vocabulary by stealing words from every language it's come into contact with and distorting a number of others. So as a consequence, in what we call common usage, we use words in slippery, imprecise ways. But when we talk about science, we have to take a deep breath and we have to be very precise by what I mean when I use specific words. So I've been purposely sloppy to make a pedagogical point. When we talk about weight and mass, we have to take a deep breath and understand they're not the same. We only think they're the same because the only place we've experienced both of these phenomena is standing on the Earth. Unless any of you happen to be in the Air Force and have experienced zero gravity, so-called, or if any of you happen to be astronauts, which I'm pretty sure you're not, no one else, only 12 human beings, have ever stood on the moon in a different gravity field. So we have to actually take a deep breath, and it's an intellectual leap. Mass. Mass is a measurement of the amount of matter in an object. If you will, the one kilo of water here, I can turn that into the number of water molecules inside this, this, this bottle. That number of molecules doesn't change whether I'm holding this bottle here, whether I take it back to my office, whether I stick it on the shuttle and burst it into orbit. There's still, whatever number of molecules is in there is still there. It's the amount of actual stuff, the count of the material that built up of. Weight, on the other hand, is the sensation of the force of gravity on a massive object. I have to pick up this liter bottle, and in picking it up, I feel my muscles doing work against gravity. If I drop it, I feel a certain impact when I catch it. If I was under a different gravity field, it would either accelerate faster or slower, depending upon that. And so my sensation of the weight of this bottle would change whether I was standing on the moon or the Earth. If I was in orbit and I let go of the bottle, it would float there. It would feel weightless. But it still has mass, right? If I'm an astronaut on the space station and someone throws this bottle and it hits me in the back, I'm going to feel it because it's still a kilo bottle but I won't get the sensation of weight when I pick it up and try to move it around. So mass is the amount of matter in the object. Weight is our sensation, the force of gravity on that object. They are not the same. And mass is the one that's fundamental because the mass is the same everywhere. No matter where that bottle of water is, it's still a bottle of a one liter of water, one kilo of water. But the weight depends upon our local gravity. It's a locally expressed concept. Now, there's a couple ways to get your head around that one. Say, mass is fundamental, weight is local. And it depends upon local gravity. 
So now we've finally got a phenomenon which is tied to place. The old way of measuring masses was how? A scale, a balanced scale. You put a weight on one side and, a weight, and the thing you're measuring on the other, and you got them until the force of gravity balanced. Well, guess what? If you did that on the moon, the force of gravity would balance in exactly the same way for both, because gravity's pulling on each in the same way. We'll see this as we talk about gravity in more detail in a few weeks. So the amount of stuff has changed. But what if I use a spring scale instead? The spring scale works by the force on the spring. The spring will stretch by a different amount in different gravity fields for the same mass. So we have to be a little careful about how we measure things. This is a very slippery idea. We even use different units, although we don't use them in everyday life as much. In the metric system, mass is measured in something called the kilogram. We've already met. Weight is measured in a unit of force called the newton, for reasons that will be obvious in a couple of weeks. So we actually express, for example, thrust from an engine in, for, in newtons, in force units. English units, mass is measured in something called the slug, as in a slug of metal or a slug of rock. This is so rarely used, you never hear this language today, but you'd have to go back two or three hundred years in old books to read about slug weights. That's where that comes from. Weight is measured in the pound and ounces as well, but pounds. So this is why people convert freely between kilograms and pounds by insisting upon English units, we have perpetuated the convolution of the concepts of weight and mass. This is another reason I hate metric. Metric makes them separate. In English, they're smeared together with our units of weights and measures. Do not mix these two. Do not mix pounds and kilos. A pound can be expressed in kilos, but a pound should really be expressed in terms of newtons. In fact, a spacecraft that was sent to Mars a couple of years ago, the engineers specified the thrust of the engine in newtons, but failed to write that down. The calculations were done in force units of pounds, and the spacecraft crashed into the planet instead of landing there safely. Why? Because they screwed up the distinction between metric and English units because it was built in the USA. It was phenomenally embarrassing. After that, NASA mandated for all things, metric only or you get fired. <laughs> Let's give you an example of the, uh, to finish up with an example of how you can tell the difference between weight and mass. Let's take the alleged uh, Elvis, who allegedly died a few years ago. At the time of his death, he had a weight of 255 pounds. Elvis was a big guy. On Earth, that also would be a mass of 116 kilograms. If Elvis were to fly to the moon, the moon's gravity is one-sixth of that on the Earth. So while there's still 116 kilograms of Elvis, the one-sixth less gravity means there's only 42 pounds of apparent weight. If Elvis went to Mars, some people say that's where he's been hiding the last few years, his weight would be 97 pounds, but he'd still be 116 kilos because there's still 116 kilos of Elvis. Jupiter, the biggest of the planet, has a huge gravity field. Elvis would weigh 597 pounds for his 116 kilos. And if we go to the biggest gravity field in the solar system, the sun, Elvis's weight would be 7,144 pounds. But despite the fact that they may be a big hunk of hunk of burning love, it is still only 116 kilos of the king of rock and roll. Use this to help you remember the distinction between weight and mass. I'll see you all tomorrow.